Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. listening to The Coming Out Tapes, an audio archive of LGBT stories. I'm your host, Keris Bradley, and throughout this season I'll be talking to lots of different people from the community about lots of different things connected to coming out. So, I am here with the wonderful Ellie Armstrong, Ellie the Element, mm-hmm. um, and we're going to be picking up the conversation that I left off with Dan, which was all about LGBT identities in the past. Um, so, we're sat in my flat eating pancakes, which is, I think, the appropriate context. Yeah, really. Uh, there is no more appropriate context than pancakes. Um, so, uh, first of all, would you like to introduce yourself? To the listeners. Hi, I'm Ellie. Uh, my pronouns are she, and I am a PhD student at the moment at University College London. I study queer heritage and physical sciences museums with a particular focus on queer feminist approaches to space science. Um, but outside of that, I also do a lot of science communication work. So um, I've done some comedy sets with Keris before that were of questionable quality, uh, but I also mainly run um, tours and podcasts to give people insights to alternative stories about science that's exhibited in museums in London. Uh, and how do you identify? Um, I identify as queer. Um, had a really interesting conversation at a conference I went to like earlier in the summer about identifying um, and what this means. Um, and interesting about 
to think about like what different terms mean and like at the same time as this conversation I'd been asked by somebody to go on to that the BBC were doing like a video about like which flag which LGBT flag do you identify with um and they were like would you come on and talk about like the bi flag and I was like well I'm not like 100% convinced that that's something I like really identify with and then they were like oh but we've already got someone talking about the rainbow flag because that's for gays and I was like oh interesting okay cool so I don't know about this like that the idea of like identifying with the term queer over and above having like a term in the LGBT acronym so anyway that's something I'm thinking about at the moment so come to doing reflexive writing about myself for my PhD which is terrifying in all senses of the space what's uh, what is reflexive writing uh, because they do critical pedagogy work part of this is being reflexive about where you sit in a space and like what you bring with you into the research and so you write a bit about uh, your background and who you are now and like how you identify in a number of different ways so things about maybe like changes in journey toward in terms of things like gender or class um, your experience in uh, racial terms your like upbringing um so i have to commit this all to paper in a way that is like kind of deeply terrifying because that then goes on to like exist in the world um and then permanent yeah exactly for something that doesn't have to be a very permanent identity so i I don't know i'm interested in uh, again like the permanence of um identities when you're asked to identify yourself in these ways there's like an element of having to pinpoint at that moment how you felt and that like that is something that then maybe is expected to not change like people might listen to this podcast in like 10 years time and they'll be like <laughs> don't. yeah no i'm sure i'll still have listeners in 10 years time yeah yeah, yeah. but uh, but but people might like i don't know someone might write their phd about you and then they'll be like oh they'll write about you know how you talked about yourself in this time period which may then no longer be like a an accurate representation of who you are in the present in some imagined future I don't know so do you remember the first time that you tried to like or you had like a crystallizing moment of trying to pinpoint your gender or sexuality you know like when you sent me these questions I was thinking about this I was like I don't think I definitely do I think I became very aware of my gender very early because I've said to like a girl's school so like I think I was surrounded by ideas about what it could mean to be a woman or like a girl and like grow into a woman and these were like both typical and non-typical representations of like what that gender might look like but um I don't think I ever like really questioned that I remember having um I was part of a really fantastic drama society at my first undergraduate university um where lots and lots of people it was a very like queer space lots of people were um, trans or gender non-conforming um, lots of people were queer in one of one stripe or another and I remember like having a conversation with one of my friends about like how how do you know if you identify as trans basically or gender non-conforming and I remember being like I think that's the first time I'd ever thought like nope I'm definitely not like gender non-conforming or trans like this is I, I like for whatever reason this like identity of a woman is definitely who I am I don't think I'd ever really like questioned if that was not until that moment but it was interesting to hear it in like response to that in terms of like sexuality I'm not really sure it's definitely after I moved to London 
Although, like, we always have, like, you, you always have, like, a teleology of these things. And I definitely had, like, a huge crush on one of my teachers at school. Looking back, I'm like, oh, I thought she was really cool. And now I'm like, no, I definitely fancied her. That was, like, 100% more than just being, like, she's a really cool teacher. Um, and, like, you know, people in popular culture. And I guess there's always these things that you're, like, at the time don't read as being queer. And then you're like, oh, no, those were 100% very queer things. Um... But I'm not sure, like, I think, I, I actually couldn't tell you, like, specifically, but, like, over a period of, like, two years, I've definitely gone to being, to, to, like, understand myself in that way much more clearly, and I think that's probably also through, like, thinking about this more, because it's now, like, part of my research as well, and, like, trying to understand, and, like, the work, the work that I do outside of my research, but something... I think drew me to doing that stuff in the first place, which is probably like telling of a historical understanding of myself. So I don't know. I don't think I've ever got like a moment of crystallization, unfortunately. Do you remember the first time that you said it out loud or told another person? I do. I think I told my best friend. Um, and I remember being like, I've never said this to anyone before. Perhaps before that, Perhaps before that I'd told, I'd like said it in a passing to somebody at an event I'd been at in kind of like an anonymous setting. And I think like I had said it in a way that was like kind of experimental, like maybe if I like, I'll see how it feels to say this out loud. Um, but like, I don't, I don't remember who that was to or like, but, but I think like saying it then was like, oh, I think I should talk about this with my friends um, and like people who actually know me. And I'm sure like for many of them, it was like, well, this is unsurprising, but it's interesting to like say it out loud and like own that. I remember vividly telling one of my friends after a dinner on Oxford Street, <laughs> we were like, she was waiting for the bus. And I was like, by the way, <laughs> and she was like, I already know. And I was like, cool. We're both really drunk in Oxford Street shouting this out loud. But like, here we are. And it, it was a beautifully like queer, queer moment. It was, that was, that was like the one that stands out in my memory. Um, Do you have any other sort of memorable coming out stories? Perhaps I... involving national newspapers. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, actually, so this, this I think came, uh, there's like National Coming Out Day. When is National Coming Out Day? You're a better person than I am. I don't know. There are so many days. I know. I can't remember the birthdays of the people that I care about. Yeah, it's true. Well, I, I only ever find out about these things the day after <laughs> when Twitter tells me. Yes, that's fair. Um, well, there is a National Coming Out Day and... Um, one of the things this and last year there was like a there's like a um queer museum group like lgbtq museum group for museum professionals across london who identify as being queer or lgbtq plus and we do like gallery visits and stuff anyway we had a trip on national coming out day and the guy who led the group i was like having drinks with him and some other people and he was like we should all tell coming out stories and i thought that was really interesting that like i or like how I think his question was more specifically like how did you come out to your parents and everyone went round and was kind of talking it was really interesting because in the, the little group of maybe five or six people that I was in there was a real variety of ages and like people from different places in the UK and different like 
stripes of being queer and different ethnicities. So it's really interesting to hear different people's coming out stories. But at that time, I hadn't talked to my parents about it. So then I was like, I was the last person. I ended up being the last person to go and to like say in the group. And I was like, this is going to be real dead. But I still haven't talked to my parents about this. And everyone was like, cool. <laughs> um, but then um, in like a couple of weeks later, I was running some tours in the Scott Polar Museum in this was in February, in the Scott Polar Museum in Cambridge. And um, the like journalist was like writing me up in the, the Times of London newspaper, just 100% the newspaper that my parents get. And the day the, re- the day the report came out, at this point still have not talked to my parents about this, but um, that day it snowed and my mum didn't go to, she works at a school, didn't go to school. And... Um, we just haven't talked about me having a boyfriend since then. Um, she used to ask me like all the time, like, and make all these like implications about partners, but like this has really died off since this time, this snow day. So I, what I assume is that like, maybe she read this newspaper. We still kind of haven't talked about it because I'm an incredibly awkward, awkward human with my parents. I have a very like, in like interesting relationship to, as probably as a result of my education. Um, but we still haven't really talked about it. So there's like, I was written up as being queer in the national newspaper before I talked to my parents about it. So I guess there's something to be said there. I think your mum then making the decision to stop pushing the boyfriend thing is a remarkably like kind way of handling that information. Yeah. So, where have we got to in the questions? I think the last one is the worst one. Um, what does what does coming out mean to you? What does coming out mean to me? Um, I don't know. I guess also. So the the other thing that happened in my life around the time that I was like thinking about my sexual identity more is that I started being surrounded by many more queer people in my life. So uh, I think that is one of those. Like I think if I had remained like more of a static version of myself from when I was younger coming out would have probably meant a lot more to me because I would have been more many more of the people that I surround myself with were like cis heteronormative people then I think it would have been maybe harder and like less well received but I think part of me feels like because I was at the time and I am currently like your wonderful self surrounded by lots of lovely queer friends that it's quite like it's quite an easy thing or quite a comfortable thing to do with other people who are like you don't I never feel like I'm pressed into saying it or people expect me to be like heterosexual partly because people like a lot of the people I hang out with are not and so they're just like well we don't have to discuss this but we'll just like work on a basis of like you being whoever you are and we'll be comfortable with that like without having to ask and like constantly verify or like come out to people in those spaces and I know that that means I'm like incredibly lucky about the people who I surround myself with and the way that they treat me and other people but it's been really nice to mean that I instead of having to like feel constantly under pressure of like trying to tell people about who I am um that being said there's like a whole other part of like group of people in my life who I like don't talk to others about so perhaps like I self like barrier like my self-censor my identity to them um 
in part because I am worried about the implications of coming out to them or like how they might respond um, probably in yeah again ways that say lots more about me than about them so yeah lots of thoughts lots of thoughts sorry this is really rambling somebody's going to listen to this and be like what the fuck is she talking about well, I shouldn't have given you so much sugar before you started I know <laughs> this is really your fault You're as the interviewer hopped up on juice <coughs> I am a small child that's what it is um <coughs> Do you want to do a little bit of talking about the tour? Sure. So, uh, in the previous episode, listeners would have heard um, the wonderful Dan Vo talking about the LGBT tours at the V&A, mm-hmm. um, and you have been one of his volunteers mm-hmm. making your own tours mm-hmm. yep. in various museums. Yeah. To which museums have you worked in? So, uh, I started doing, I started my querying tours in the Science Museum. Uh, across the road from the V&A um, but actually mainly inspired by Dan's tours so when I was like preparing this and I was writing a funding application to get some money from the British Society for the History of Science for the tours I went to Dan's tour for the LGBTQ History Month and um, I uh, ran from my work because I was then working at the Science Museum fully pegged it across Exhibition Road t- to like be late to the tour anyway and had to like go and find them in the gallery which was like fairly easy because there was lots of people with like rainbow lanyards and stuff because it was like LGBTQ History Month um, and then spoke to Dan afterwards and it was from that like from seeing that tour of like how you could do this and what that what that would mean in the gallery space that I started running the tours at the Science Museum um and so yeah we ran them for like a month in july 2018 we had uh over 100 people come to like what was effectively like a pop-up tour situation uh i advertised them on twitter but we didn't have any like backing from the science museum or anything like that so i was pretty impressed with like people who came uh how many people came at such short notice uh the only exception being uh we ran a tour on the sunday after pride uh and it transpires that's a really bad day to do lgbtq (laughs) history work uh nobody wants to be out of bed at 2 p.m in the afternoon everyone was not there um so that was really fun and i enjoyed it a lot and one of the things that i really like we did a lot of feed we got feedback from our participants from participants who came on the tour and one of the things that came out of it was like that people don't really think about lgbtq history in relation to science and technology engineering mathematics identities and that like partly because of the success of tours like dance tours at the vna and other cultural arts and heritage museums doing this stuff and people often think of uh, like queer work as being associated with like the arts or like culture and um far fewer people knew anything about like what it would mean to think queer to think queerly about STEM or to think um, about queer STEM individuals. Um, so then from that, I've also been a tour guide at the Scott Polar Research um, Museum, which I think is a research institute. And I think the museum is just called the Polar Museum now. They rebranded. Um, so there we do a work on like kind of also both the science of like Arctic and Antarctic research, but also like cultural queerness for like Sami, Satmi, um, Chikchika and like Inuit people who live in, peoples who live in the Arctic region. And um, and then from being involved with that, I've been invited to write the tours for the Whipple Museum for the History of Science and for the Sedgwick Earth Sciences Museum. So those are in production as we speak on it at the middle of October 2019, but maybe, maybe done. Uh, by the time this episode is released, so you could come and see some more um, science tours in Cape. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. 
Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Um, but yeah, trying to make sure that the tours cover not only things like LGBTQ scientists, but also ways of thinking about how like the heteronormative patriarchy pervades the kind of theories and ideas that we come up with and produce in um, scientific research and how we can like challenge those in those spaces as well. Can you, could you give an example? Yeah, so um, in the Science Museum in London, we did um, a little bit on uh, displays of vole rats. Um, so they have some they have some vole rats. There are two different types of vole rats. There's like prairie voles and meadow voles. And um, some of the voles, uh, like one of the species of voles, the two um, have monogamous, the, the like male and female have monogamous relationships and they like raise their little like prairie vole pups together. And then in the other species they have, um, the female vole rat is like a promiscuous, she's characterized as promiscuous and has many male partners. And often in like genetics research, um, the like hormones that are thought to code for monogamy are transplanted into the voles that are polyamorous. And so like we discuss like how this tells us about, um, like, perceived superiority of particular types of relationships because it would be as possible to try and like suppress that uh, hormone or uh, try to transplant a different hormone from the polyamorous vole rats um, but that's not the decision that's made in those research cases and that tells us about like what is deemed to be a preferable way to have like relationships um, we also talk a lot about like how you go back in time and um, understand people's identities so we talked about Roberta Cowell who was a Spitfire pilot in the Second World War and the first woman to have vaginoplasty surgery in um, Harley Street in London um, but that like whilst Roberta Cowell wrote an autobiography about herself and her uh, like work and her life and the way that her um, like 
sex change and like vaginoplasty surgery and the way that this was covered in the newspapers was perceived during the 1950s, 60s, 70s and 80s. Um, There are lots of people historically in the past who might have been like trans, gender non-conforming, people who were passing as men or women in order to have access to professions that they were otherwise excluded from. And it's very difficult to go back and like look at the historical record and understand how people might have identified themselves um, and might have wanted to be identified. So we talked a bit about James Barry and there's currently a lot of like debate about how, or, or there's, there's a, academic debate about whether James Barry um, would have identified as being trans or was a person who used male pronouns in order to have access to a medical profession. Could you Uh, just tell the listeners who James Barry was? Yeah, so James Barry was a medic in the late 1700s, early 1800s, I think. I'm sorry, I haven't done this tour for over a year, so like a lot of the like finer details of the tour have been somewhat elided in my mind. Um, but he, um, came over from Ireland to learn medicine at the Edinburgh Medical School and, um, from arriving in Edinburgh, um, identified himself as James Barry, a name that he took from his uncle, the painter, James Barry RA, um, and, um, continued to be a practicing medical professional. He went to South Africa as part of like the army corps and performed one of the first like Western cesareans where both the mother and the child survived in South Africa. Um, and when he died, um, he asked in his will for nobody to like look at the body before it was buried. But the woman who, uh, washed his body and prepared it for burial, um, apparently claimed that uh, it was actually the body of a woman. Um, and so then people have talked about, there's like scholarly debate about whether James Barry would have identified as being trans or if James Barry was using a male uh, persona to access the medical profession that at the time was inaccessible to women. I very much sit on the side of understanding James Barry as being a uh, somebody who identified as a man unlike many other women who were like adopting these personas in order to have access to the medical profession and they tend to go back to using their like female names and female pronouns after they finished being a medic um so for like later life when they're old they like go back to being called she and using their original names um and james barry never does this he retains like both his name and his pronouns until he's signing off his will um, in the very last letters that he writes. There's no indication that he ever wanted to be recognized as anyone except James Barry. Um, So I think that like, it's really valuable to think about how does that sit against the canon of the time and why are people so intent on reading James Barry as a woman, which tells us a little bit about maybe women's history, trying to reclaim like women of the past um, and the dangers of trying to like include people who would not have identified as women in this like historical push to find hidden women. Um, So for example, he was at the same time that I was doing the tours included in a women, 500 years of women in the medical profession um, exhibition at the Royal College of Physicians um, as somebody who was like a woman in medicine in the like late 1700s which I would contest and say that like, this is not actually how he saw himself because he constantly continued referring to himself as he, 
and there's no indication that later in his life he wanted to be recognised as anything else. And the secrecy around his burial, to me, reads as like somebody who wants to maintain that identity beyond the grave as well. So, yeah. When you have kind of figures that you want to talk about, like James Barry, but other people as well, yep. um, how do you kind of go about your research to make sure that you're, you know, trying yep. to include as much information as that individual would have wanted? Um, it kind of depends on, like, where in history they sit. Obviously, different people have different records. Um Something I'm interested in in doing this is like trying to expand maybe like the queer canon of people that we talk about. So a lot of uh, like people who do this stuff, they kind of maybe look at like what other people have written about like queer heritage of the past. So I try to look at, uh, I'm often interested in like particular fields and then like go through like individuals maybe who come up in a historical record in the field. it's about looking at like what other scholars have written, um, talking to people who I know work in like queer representation in his- in heritage, and also queer historians, um, queer science scholars, um, and kind of discussing these things. So I think like I often do a lot of the reading to begin with, and then kind of like try to understand how I would like understand the- this person's identity. Um, and then talk to other people about it as well to see if I've understood it in the same if I've understood what has been written and what is, exists in the world in the same way that they have. Uh, one thing I try to do in my tours is like introduce the possibility always that I am incorrect. Um, that like not only might my research be incomplete because like uh, documents don't reach us, I can't read lots of foreign languages so texts that are about people that exist in foreign language I rely on translations for so there's the possibility that the person who did the translation is deliberately changing or inadvertently changing how that text would have existed in the original um, but also that like a lot of this stuff from the past just doesn't reach us so it's very difficult to know exactly who these people were or how they might have identified but something that I think these tours create is the space for thinking about history as being like non-cis heteronormative just because we don't have the records that say that this person is queer doesn't mean that they weren't and doesn't mean that we have to like that we can only think about people who are queer as people who are who have like distinct clear historical records about that because then like why like the barrier for that is really high and this this then tells people that like why why are you so worried if I accidentally queer or if I inadvertently queer somebody who turns out later to be heteronormative why is that such a bad thing given that so many people in the historical canon have been defined as heteronormative when they clearly weren't and that's like oh sorry never mind but like for some reason if we this happened in the opposite direction it'd be like this is such a terrible thing that you've done to these historical figures uh so i think like trying to open the possibility of like people being queer in the past as not being a bad thing um and that like the the barrier for the the demonstration of proof doesn't have to be like 
we have like historic I mean we don't have to be like look for ad listers in everyone right we don't need people who just like write about their sexual encounters in order to verify that they were in fact sleeping with women um and or you know in those cases for example Sappho yeah you can have that evidence and people will still be like oh no just making it up she was just yeah. making it up yeah she was just really like imaginative um yeah as if a woman imagining having sex with other women isn't queer um yeah exactly <laughs> uh, <coughs> so when you're giving your tours and you're talking to people about people from the past who maybe had different ways of mm-hmm. uh expressing their sexuality or their gender to the like terms that we might mm-hmm. use now mm-hmm. and that might be because they didn't yeah because uh, they they had different kind of cultural signifiers, they didn't use the same kind of language. How do you describe their sexuality or their gender? I often try to use like the language that either they use or was used at the time to describe it initially, and then I'll give the audience like some kind of mapping to what we might think about that today. This is something that is like quite uh, difficult, and I tend to I tend to then revert as long as the term is like. I guess like acceptable in some like broad you know quote unquote you can't see me listeners but I'm making some air quotes like way it's not gonna like offend anyone by using this term in the way that we might see like particular terms associated with race being problematic to say now um I tend to try and use the term from the time that they like, well, how they identified themselves. And this is particularly the case when I talk about people from different cultures that are non-Western. So for example, at the Scott Polo Museum, we have a lot of information about uh, people who, uh, like, for example, Inuit or Satme people who identify as queer in some way, but within the contemporary, like, Satme community, there is evidence of a pushback on using terms like LGBTQ, uh, queer, um, because these come with, like, a loaded understanding of a Western acceptance of sexuality and gender identity, and instead, uh, a lot of people in those communities might use terms like two-spirit, which comes from the uh, Indigenous uh, Americas populations. as being like terms that connote queerness but that don't come from a western canon um so try and respect those kind of things as well so if if people are choosing to identify with terms that sit outside uh western construction of knowledge i don't want to tell my audience like they identify as this which is the same as being gay and or lesbian and or whatever trans um and then continue using those Western terms because that is, again, like a colonial act of, like, erasing the identity outside of the Western space. So um, I try and apply the same thing to historic characters as well, historic individuals, um, in order to give people a sense that also, like, the terminology we've ended up with today is transient. People might identify with terms that are unfamiliar with some people to some people in the community, outside of our LGBTQ community, Um and that the way that terms within the community are used changes. So I often start the tours with a disclaimer about using the word queer, uh, which I use to represent like both an, ide- an umbrella term for like identities in this space, but also uh, an area of theory that talks about sexuality and gender and understanding that stuff. 
However, like not that long ago, this was a very offensive term for some people um, in the community. And I, I tell people like, you know, if this, if this makes you uncomfortable, please talk to me and I can change the way that I'm going to give the tour. But this for me is how I understand this term and how I'm going to use it here. So I think trying to be clear about like what the term is that you're using, what it might be like, um, but respecting the authenticity of words as being a way of like a, an act of resistance in that space. You have to go. I do. So I'm we so sorry. Wrap up. Um, do you, you have anything you would like to plug? Uh, at the moment, um, come, come and see in the future and all present the tours at the Cambridge Museums. Um, I give tours at the Victoria and Albert Museum last Saturdays of the month at the moment, but this might change um, to being more frequent. Um, you can find me online at, at Ellie the Element, and I have a podcast if you're interested in learning more about ways that science museums erase plural identity, which Keris has also been on, called Behind the Glass Cabinet. You can find that wherever you get your podcasts. Thank Brilliant. you for having me. Thank you for coming up. Uh, can I offer you a brioche for the road? Oh, interesting. Perhaps I might take. Can I take a fig for the road? Yeah, take a fig for the road. It's incredibly sapphic, and I love it. listening to this episode of the coming out tapes i have been your host Keris bradley and i would like to say thanks to scary boots for the artwork which is available to purchase on redbubble michaela moody for the music and alex lathbridge of the smart material collective for his support of the project if you want to get involved please tweet at us because we'd love to hear your thoughts comments and questions if you liked this episode subscribe and leave us a review or recommend us to a friend because it makes a big difference Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.